All right, good morning. It's good to see you all here in Paramus. Uh, it is by the grace of God that we've had such a wonderful opportunity to worship here, even though our sanctuary is being worked on. I was thinking about that, and, you know, when you move places, you think about what was once, and you also think about what is to come, kind of like humanity, you know? Eden was great. Now is not so great, but we're looking forward to something truly great. And so even as I was sitting here on the chairs, I did miss our old chairs. Our chairs are nice. I think it's one of the better chairs out there. But um, it truly is by the grace of God, and all, these, um, all of the servants here in our church have been working almost around the clock, coming even here at 7.30 to set up to see what you have. And it's such a wonderful thing to see us uh, working for the Lord and the Lord using that and producing fruit. And uh, I'm just really thankful, as um, our elder prayed too, that we can come to a place like this and still worship God while still looking forward to what He has planned for us in the near future. Uh, just a quick announcement. After this, though, um, we do still have fellowship. It's, it's a bit of a walk. And so maybe like a two-minute walk down the hallway, and then you make a right, and there's a cafeteria. So I would ask that all of you join us for food and for fellowship. And also, uh, someone in our church has generously donated their office space for our morning prayer, because we don't have a, a sanctuary for the time being. Interestingly enough, his office in South Hackensack, I heard, used to be a church. And so... There we are again, and so it's great. Uh, there will be an announcement given, so please look for that. And if you don't know already, you could always check for the most updated announcements of our church at our website, or you can download our app in the App Store, so CGSNJ, um, and then you could download that app, and then you'll get push notifications on all the happenings of our church. And so with that said, we are in still a series on happiness, and I really wanted to get into it. I was very happy to present this, and hopefully you are as well. And as we go into the second part of our series on happiness, let's start with a prayer. Almighty God, with much gratitude and thanksgiving, we come before your throne now asking that you would soften the hearts here of all the listeners, all of the worshipers, that we may be able to understand, have the Word of God planted deep within our souls, and so to bear fruit in our lives, fruit that will last an eternity for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 to 9. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 through 9. When you have found it, please rise from your seats for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and have heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace, peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So last week I spoke on what happiness is, whether it's rejoicing in the Lord always, being full of joy, or the nature of what happiness is. And after listening to a message like that, I imagine some of the responses to be something like, what are you talking about? Who are you talking to? Because who is happy all the time. Are you happy all the time? That is an unachievable and frankly ridiculous precept. Might be somewhat of a response, perhaps. And yet, the Word of God commands, not suggests, commands that we be happy in the Lord always. And just to make sure we get it, in verse 4, he says, And again I say, be happy. So let's start. Today we'll go over the mystery of happiness, as last week we went over the nature of happiness, and we'll start with the introduction. Happiness is the very least, in the very least, I should say, than not to be determined by our circumstances. Because if happiness were determined by our circumstances, then a lot of people would not be happy most of the time. Happiness isn't defined then by our outer material circumstance. But I mentioned last week, at the same time, It isn't solely some kind of ethereal inner peace that you achieve that so many Eastern religions promote. Happiness is both inside and outside, and at the same time, not only on the inside and not only on the outside. And so let me elaborate a little bit more before we move on. It's not simply being able to achieve happiness in the inner self, regardless, separate from the outer self. So Paul was able to learn the secret of contentment in verse 12 of this chapter to the Philippians precisely because he was able to connect his inner self with his outer self, not neglecting one for the other. Unlike the Stoics of his era, all the way, I would say, to the thinkers of our age today. So every once in a while, I look up how to be happy. I'm always curious. And I see articles and blogs from places like Psychology Today or Healthline, you know, and the like. I came across an article on WebMD of all places. I heard WebMD, all the doctors love it when you go to WebMD before you see them and then tell them what your diagnosis is. So that's what I recommend completely. But WebMD has an article where it cites research that 
happiness is largely determined by your genes. Well, that's a bummer then, huh? I suppose you could tell God, I can't be happy because, God, you made me this way, huh? Only you still can't get away from the precepts of God. Just because you believe you were born a certain way does not supersede God's preceptive will. And by preceptive will, I mean what God has established in his word for all eternity. All people are like grass, and all their glory is the flowers, is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so I think there are two major groups, two major groups of thought in the way they see happiness for me. One is the thought that pervades our culture today, where pleasure is happiness. We train our minds and bodies to seek what gives us pleasure. And I would even add, now with social media algorithms now, not only do we train our minds and bodies to seek which gives us pleasure, that which gives us pleasure, but I would even add that our minds and bodies are being trained to seek what gives us pleasure. Now, it's not as simplistic as to say that happiness and pleasure, even in this thought process, are synonymous entities. But in a Venn diagram, if I were to draw a Venn diagram, happiness, the happiness circle would fit inside the pleasure circle. But on the flip side, we have other leaders and philosophers that move away from such hedonistic ideals and go the way of the Stoics, where happiness and pleasure are circles completely separated from each other. Things like you will only find true happiness if you can let go of all expectation, let go of pleasure, or something to that effect. Now with these two schools of thought, I believe the Christian virtue of happiness is neither one of those two. In fact, I don't think it's even a mix of those two. And let me give you one more example. So far, I believe what I've given you is more simple uh, examples, but let me give you a more, a tiny bit more complex. Perhaps you will find this to be enjoyable as well. And you have to stay with me on this one. In Genesis 18, the Lord visits Abraham and Sarah, and he tells them that they're going to have a son a year from now. When Sarah overhears the Lord tell Abraham this, she laughs. And in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12, she says this, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That's your ESV translation. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And so, the word that she uses for herself, worn out, is used up. That's what it means. It's, it's synonymous with the word used up. It's used to describe old rags and things that are decaying. She uses that word to describe herself after I am all worn out. And then she calls Abraham, her husband, something similar to what she used for herself, but not as harsh because she's awesome. Anyway, I was thinking about that. You know, how many wives would lift up their husbands today and not feel like... Anyway, uh, but uh, she uses 
a word that means old. Abraham is old. And that word is only used in the Bible when people are actually old. To be described as old then means that you are on your way to death. That means that you are no longer productive. So if you had to describe yourself as old in the Hebrew language, that means you are no longer able to produce in all its ways. You're no longer productive. You're old, you stop producing. Perhaps you're old, so now that you can enjoy the fruits of your labors, but production is not a part of your life anymore. That's what it means by old. Like Isaac was old in chapter 27 when he decided to bless Esau, but bless Jacob instead. But Isaac didn't die in Genesis 27. He went all the way to Genesis 35. And all these things happened in between where Jacob would go and traverse all the way to Laban's territory, would work seven years for what he thought would be Rachel, and then it was Leah, and then he worked another seven years for Rachel, and then you go back and kind of go back and forth twice with Esau. All these things happened, and then he would pass in chapter 35. But Isaac was still described as old in chapter 27. So, both the words that Sarah uses for herself, albeit it's harsher for herself, but both the words that she uses to describe herself and her Lord Abraham, as she would say, describe the state of oldness when Abraham and Sarah, this reality they were facing when the Lord came to see them, and, they told, and the Lord told them that they would have a baby in a year. We know that that age is around 89 or 90 for Sarah or 99 or 100 for Abraham. That's old. But here is the part I really wanted to get to. I wanted to give you that context. She goes, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That word for pleasure in the Hebrew means delicacy. It means sexual pleasure. So when you think about it and you meditate on Genesis 18, for Sarah having a baby, all the pleasures associated with all the journey associated with having a baby is part of giving birth eventually to Isaac. Everything is connected. There was no separation. They were all correlated there was no confusing of the, in the mind of these things of these concepts in the mind of Sarah and i would argue in the minds of all the other exemplars of the faith that we see in the bible and even in hebrews when it came to this subject and i believe it is only now that we have trouble connecting and separating the two between pleasure and happiness happiness and pleasure we don't know how to deal with these two so either you completely separate it or you just combine them and they mean the same thing it's neither of those two and i'm saying again it's neither a mix of those two and so for us today i believe that there is a great mystery in the way that a christian comes to a state of happiness that we are to understand it's a mystery that escapes the heart that does not know God. I believe the heart of flesh can only understand the things and the ways of the world. And so you can either come to one of these conclusions that I mentioned previously, but there is yet another way, a true way, that a Christian can understand happiness. So let's go to chapter 1. Chapter 1, the peace of God. 
First, let's get to under what umbrella we attain happiness. From verses 4 to 6, Paul talks about rejoicing in the Lord. He commands us to be happy. But then in verse 7 is where we see that it is the peace of God that is directly connected to rejoicing in the Lord or being happy. How is it connected? How is it correlated? In verse 7, we see that Paul writes, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's no coincidence that Paul talks about the peace of God after mentioning happiness in verse 4. It is because to receive a happiness that the world cannot give, there needs to be a peace that the world cannot offer. This peace of God surpasses all understanding because it is not of the world. It is of God. And then this peace is given to us for what? To do what? To guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard is a military term that Paul uses. The Philippians also, the 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 church in Philippi, they also lived in a garrison town. So when he used this word, they would have been familiar, and they would have pictured the Roman sentry that would be maintaining his watch around the town. That's what guard means. In John Bunyan's famous work, Pilgrim's Progress, it's when Mr. God's Peace, that's his name, Mr. God's Peace was made governor of the town of Mansoul, that the whole town was blessed and protected. You see, the origin of the peace that guards our hearts and our minds is from heaven. And because it is from heaven, it then, I'm going to make the next step here. If it's from heaven, then what? It has a sanctifying property. It has a sanctifying property of those that it was sent to guard. And this is also iterated by our Lord Jesus when he says that it is his peace that he gives to us in John 14, 27. Its sanctifying property is to protect us from trouble and fear. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. There is a sanctifying process that happens when the peace of God comes to reign over your life. And that's what we need to understand. You need to have the peace of God reign over your life. And this is what's given to Christians. But before we move on, Let's go back a little bit to the descriptive of God's peace. It's something that Paul says surpasses all understanding. And that means at least two things. I think there are more, but it means at least two things. And number one, it means that it goes beyond our range of understanding. The peace of God goes beyond our range of understanding. The peace of God is so great that our minds cannot fathom the greatness of it. And that's the kind of peace that's given to us. But this leads to the second understanding. The word for surpass in the Greek is hyper-echo, or hyper-echo, okay? 
And it means surpassing greatness, but also surpassing value. It surpasses value. That means this is a peace that transcends even our thoughts and dreams. It's a peace that goes even beyond our desires. Chapter 2, hungry yet satisfied. Hungry yet satisfied. And as the peace of God guards and sanctifies the soul of a believer, you find that even if you had the entire world or even a thousand worlds, you would not be satisfied. I find it ironic and kind of comedic even that the movies today can't help but to display that. You are not happy in this world, so you discover the multiverse. And guess what? You're still not happy. And that's the movie. Because Imagine you discovered the multiverse and then you're happy. You wouldn't have a movie. You know? No one would want to watch that. So they can't help but to write something where you're still not happy in another world. So whether you had this world or a thousand worlds, you would not be satisfied. But yet with God, even a morsel of bread will satisfy the peace of God that guards and sanctifies the soul of a believer shows us that we are not satisfied, even with a thousand worlds, and yet with God, even a morsel of bread satisfies us. And this is something I've been seeing more and more in a deeper and more significant way, increasing in its severity as the generations progress, perhaps, and you can watch all these videos on food. There's all these videos on your social media on foods, how to make the best kind of foods, cook the best kinds of foods, eat the best kinds of foods, go to the best kinds of foods, and yet not know how to truly enjoy the food. What these folks really enjoy is the show of enjoyment it's showing their enjoyment, not actually enjoying in their videos. I think also because food was meant to be a social experience as well as for sustenance, well, we've replaced the social experience with social media. And they are two different things. I'll give you another example to uh, try to hone in on this. There is a bodybuilder on social media with millions upon millions of followers. He may have achieved a hypertrophic state and definition that maybe even 1% of the world could dream of. What I mean by that is that this bodybuilder is the 1% of the 1%. But there was a nine-month period where he didn't post and after nine months, one of his friends came out and said that he's doing okay, but he's battling severe depression and anxiety. The mystery of happiness is that while a thousand worlds would not satisfy, millions and millions upon millions of followers will not satisfy, but a morsel of bread from the Lord will satisfy you and give you great joy. In Psalm 73, verse 25, the psalmist writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and earth has nothing I desire besides you. What comes from the hand of God satisfies me, not because of the thing in God's hand, more than the hand itself that comes with it. Even if it's all the riches in the world, if it's not from the hand of God, it cannot satisfy. And at the same time, even if it were a morsel, and only a morsel of bread and nothing else, if it were from the hand of God, it would satisfy the soul more than all the riches the world has to offer. And that's why I say it is better to be hungry with God than to be rich without him. Jesus would say in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? And I want to tell you the context of where he, what he says. The context of what he says there is about discipleship. I read verse 26, but here's verse 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Chapter 4. Satisfied, yet hungry. Satisfied, yet hungry. The great mystery of Christian happiness is that the Christian can be the happiest person in the world then, and yet at the same time, the most unsatisfied person in the world. What? What is going on here? The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs writes about the happy man's motto, and this is the happy man's motto. I am content with what I have and hope for better. I am content with what I have and hope for better. And so now that we've gone to chapter Three, you might be wondering in this section, how is that the case? How is that the case? And while the happiest person in the world would not be satisfied with all the things of the world and yet be happy with just a morsel of bread because it's from God, the happiest person in the world is happier than anyone else in the world, and yet he is still not satisfied with anything in the world. And let me tell you what that means. He wants more. Verse 8 of this section that we've read this morning is finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Why this insertion? Is it random? I don't think so. A person who does not know happiness cannot do these things. He cannot think about whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, or praiseworthy. Even before you knew Christ, a deep unsatisfaction hung over your life. Were you able then to even think about these things? In a state of unwell-being, you cannot raise yourself to think about the greater things because only the peace of God could raise yourself because the peace of God is of surpassing value, is of greatness. And because of the peace of God, now you can think about whatever is true, good, and beautiful. You now want those things. You want what is true. You want what is good. You want what is beautiful. 
There are godly riches to be desired. And that's what I really want to differentiate between us and maybe the Stoics of the world. Just as the peace of God leads you to the God of peace, the riches of God leads you to the God of those riches. Again, the earth has nothing I desire besides God, but it is God that I desire. And then, if that's the case, if that's the case, and you are tracking, you must realize then that desire is no small desire. In fact, it is larger than any desire in the world that anyone in the world could ever desire without God. The larger the object, we understand that we need to have the larger the desire. Don't you see? You want one dollar. Well, then you to get that dollar, you need to have a desire to match the dollar. You don't expend energy to match a million dollars to get a dollar. That's foolishness. Doesn't make any sense. So when we say that the Christian's desire is not simply for the riches, but for God himself. And C.S. Lewis famously wrote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. And it's true, when we muck around with food and sex as the ultimate object of our desires, the desire is too weak because it will never satisfy. And we are never satisfied until we recognize that only God will satisfy. In chapter 5, he is no fool. He is no fool. This is from a quote from the famed, martyred Christian missionary, Jim Elliot. This is his quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If you looked inside Jim Elliot's journals, that quote was the out, outward working or the outworking of a deep meditation of Luke 16.9. What is Luke 16.9? It's the parable of the shrewd manager. And if you're familiar with it, you're like, what? And this is Luke 16.9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That's the verse he was meditating on when he came up with that quote. What I mean by he is no fool is that there is a way of subtraction in the Christian's life that leads to addition. And this is connected with the desire. And I hope you will see this bridge. This is also implied when you think about the things that are true, good, and beautiful. You are thinking about what Christians have labeled the three transcendentals, meaning that these three things are things that exist beyond all material. They exist beyond space, matter, time. And you start to realize then, when you think about these things, you start to realize that all truth is God's truth. All goodness is God's goodness. And all beauty is God's beauty. Put that in the negative. We see that if it then is not God's truth, it's not true. If it's not God's goodness, it's not goodness. And if it's not God's beauty, it is not beautiful. 
So the way of subtraction in the Christian life that leads to the addition that we seek is to let go of the things that are not true, good, and beautiful. If it's not true, if it's not good, if it's not beautiful, you're not a fool to let those things go. And I think that it goes beyond simply this monochromatic, perhaps a black and white dichotomy I am showing here. And this is the portion that takes discernment and wisdom. You need to know where you are. You, I'm talking about you personally. You need to know where you are, what state that you're in, so that you can discern. Your desire for riches, and maybe even your riches, they are taking so much of your heart right now that you have to let it go. The young rich ruler will go to Jesus asking how he may attain eternal life. And when Jesus told him, all you have to do is let go of your riches, he walked away. The young rich ruler walked away with great sadness. You cannot hold on to something that takes up all your heart and then think that you can still take possession of God. Your desire for riches that you hold on to so tightly in your hand will subsume any desire that you have or you think you have for God. And ironically enough, it is those des- it's those desires that will consume you rather than you are able to consume it. Just like you think that once you have riches, you can consume those riches, that you can enjoy it. But it's quite the opposite, isn't it? Those riches consume you. And I do a lot of counseling, pastoral counseling personally, and people come up to me and ask me for biblical wisdom. What does the Bible say about this and that? And I realized something. A lot of the relational issues that people face, it can be boiled down to something quite simple, maybe not reductively, but simply, is that you have a problem with your relationship because that person that you have a problem with was supposed to meet an expectation. They were supposed to fill a need of yours, and that need isn't met. And so you rage. You become depressed. You don't know what to do with yourself. You're beside yourself. You are no longer happy. What you have to do then, you have to let go of that desire. And if you let that desire go, you are no fool of letting it go, for letting it go. Chapter 6, Fool Shaming the Wise. Fools shaming the wise. This brings us to our penultimate chapter and the point of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, it says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is the system that God has set up right now. It's to teach us and to show us the surpassing greatness of God. Life cannot, and it could not, Life could not be attained with all the wisdom, knowledge, and riches of the world. How was life attained? Life was attained by the one who became low. He would humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, we see in Philippians 2.8. Jesus Christ died, and on the third day he rose again from the grave. It was a humility that was validated by the Father through the raising of his body. And in his humility, those 
that were once dead, those that place their faith in him come to life as he has come to life. That also means that those that place in him, their faith in him now are the ones that were once poor and now are rich. Those that were once unsatisfied, destitute, are now being brought to a place of overflow. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. How is that possible? In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In this system that God has created, then poverty isn't poverty anymore if it is in Christ. Ambrose would also write that even poverty itself is riches to holy men. Poverty itself is riches to holy men. God would use the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Riches didn't bring what it promised, but in Christ you are brought to a true place of wealth. Because even poverty in Christ, that's what it means, even poverty when you're in Christ will lead you to great riches. And in lies the great mystery of happiness that our Lord teaches us. In John 16, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is all about happiness. Don't you see? The Lord is the one that gives us happiness and he wants us to live in that happiness and joy. In chapter 7, the final chapter Contagious happiness. And in verse 9, it says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And we'll explore a little bit more about the exercise of happiness next week. But here, we see that happiness is a clear expression, and it is then to be mimicked. What exactly is mimicked? Well, Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, held to the notion that the moral value of an act decreases as we aim to derive benefit from it. Now, what that means is that if you desire the outcome of the moral act, the morality of the act becomes tainted. You know what I mean? So if you're happy that you helped someone poor, then that really wasn't a moral act because it was a self-serving act because you did it to be happy. That's Immanuel Kant. If that makes sense to you, it's because a lot of Christians have been duped into also believing that. We feel bad for being happy about doing good things. No wonder no one sees us as people of joy. 
No one, no wonder no one sees Christians as characteristically happy. Because we've been duped by that thinking. The Christian ethic actually holds to quite the opposite view. The more you practice, the more you exercise the will of God, the more happy you become, and that happiness expressed is contagious to all the people around you, that they would also be encouraged to do the will of God. To do the will of God is to store up treasures in heaven. Jonathan Edwards would write some resolutions, and in his 22nd resolution, he would say, Resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Jonathan Edwards realized is that the way I am happy, the way I do the will of God, the way I exercise love, faith, hope, all these things, it's like a competition. Some of you are very competitive here, so competitive that sometimes it's troublesome, but many of you have a healthy competitive attitude. That's great. And if you have trouble, it's good that you're here so that we can teach you. But... Some of you like competition, but it's like a competition. Don't you see? Who's going to come here at 7.30 a.m.? So I am. Well, I'll be here at 7.29. That's the kind of heart that we're talking about. Love one another with brotherly affection, Paul writes in Romans 12.10. But he adds this, outdo one another in showing honor. It is a competition. You outdo the other person in showing love. The happy society we see in vision in the scriptures is this one. The people of God all striving to do the will of God. Even though you may not understand it, as you do it, the mystery gets revealed more and more because as you do it, you see the hand of God in your life, the peace of God that rules over your life, and you see that you are moving more and more step by step to God himself. The people of God all striving to do the will of God all through the happiness that is in God. And they're able to do it because they are under the peace of God. That's the life that we have been called to. The mystery of happiness is a great mystery, but it's a mystery that is given to those that would seek it earnestly, that would search for it, that would think about what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. And that is what God has commanded you to do. This is what we are to do as a church. And as you do it, you see the fruits of what God has prepared for us. Praise be to God, because this is the fruit of Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, we have the church. We get to be his bride. Praise the Lord for his incredible grace to us that we get this opportunity we get this privilege to do the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do in our lives. We thank you for teaching us, showing us, and most especially revealing to us. Help us now to continue to meditate on what the mystery of happiness is to us that you give us as your sons and daughters as we live according to your will, seeking your glory, 
receiving pleasure from doing your will. Let's take this time to pray. And as we pray, what I want to encourage you to do is to do as the Lord commands, to think about the things that are true, good, and beautiful, to think about the Lord and his character, how he leads you, how he guides your life, and respond to him in that prayer with thankfulness, with a heart of gratitude, but also with a heart of determination to now outdo even one another in loving, in living in happiness. Let's pray.